Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 125, The End of the F***ing World. Ah, he almost did it, folks. I got it. You won't be able to hear it because it was was beeped out. Um, But yeah, that's what we're talking about. It's the end of the season. It's the end of 2020. Um, I think everyone can agree that this is the best year that's ever happened, right? Right? No? Oh, sorry. I, I, I read it wrong. I read it wrong off of the sheet, Jonathan. I apologize. We can all agree it's the worst year ever. Definitely the worst year ever. Only rivaled by like the year 462 or whatever. There there was like actually a team of historians that settled upon the worst, like the, worst, the worst year in history. And it's like somewhere in like the 400s or, or the 600s or something like that. And it's That's like the hilarious. Black Plague and like a bunch of wars all at once. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, we have a plague. It's not the Black Plague, but we have a yeah. plague. So that's one part of it. No the wars. The plague could be worse, honestly. I mean, it's it's not great, but it could be worse. It has been worse historically. Yeah, no, definitely. This this The plague that we are currently having is nowhere near as bad as the Black Plague, to be Although clear. Although sometimes I wonder how deadly the Black Plague and the Bubonic Plague would be with modern medicine. You know? uh, well, you don't have to, Jonathan. It's It's still a thing. It's oh. still around and it's really like as long as you notice it and get it checked out by a doctor, it's incredibly treatable and not that deadly. Um, it's just one of those things that you if and you vice versa. If COVID was in the 1600s, it would probably be way deadlier yeah. than it is now. <laughs> I mean, they didn't even have germ theory until I know like oh one or gosh. 200 years ago, I, which is I crazy. brought this up in our in our pandemic episode. But, you know, I was reading uh, some classic plague lit as you do. Um, but a, a journal of the plague year by Daniel Defoe. And he's literally talking about speculations of where the plague comes from. And someone, uh, you know, he's like, this one guy said that if you look, if you look really closely at the, at the blood under a microscope, there are dragons and serpents and stuff in there that are causing it. And I'm like, that's exactly what a virus looks like, uh, under a microscope. So they, that person that's nailed it and everyone way to ridiculed it, him. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe he shouldn't have phrased it as dragons, but. Yeah, but yeah, uh, up until then, uh, the most common theory was miasma, um, which is if it sounds like asthma, that's relevant because it's a reference to uh, the idea that bad air makes you sick. Yeah, um, specifically like breathing untrue. it or smelling it. Yeah, yeah, which isn't always untrue necessarily. If you are out on like a cold, rainy, wet day, you're probably more likely to get sick because that makes your lungs weaker and more susceptible to germs that are already there in there. Um, but it's not like just making your lungs See, cold the and wet. Trilogy. Yeah. It's not like just making your, your hair and uh, the air you breathe cold and wet uh, yeah. is going to make you sick in and of itself. That's also why people keep opening that damn window in Dracula. Like if you've ever wondered what that <laughs> right. was about. Like it's not like people were like, oh, well, I thought she was uncomfortable. They thought let's they were trying to. vampires in. They, they legitimately thought they were trying to save her life by opening that window to keep the bad air, let, let the bad air out and let good air in. Um, they're also just oh, letting the a deranged, uh, undead sex criminal in through the window. Um, but that's neither here nor there, Jonathan, because that's not what we're talking about today. What apocalyptic movies are we talking about today? Yeah, so we are actually starting off with a virus, appropriately. Uh, but in general, we're talking about just, uh, yeah, apocalyptic movies. Movies in which the world as we know it is completely turned upside down or destroyed 
and how the characters uh, react to that. And the first one is 28 Days Later from 2002, directed by Danny Boyle and written by Alex Garland, uh, which we'll get into why we're bringing that up specifically. Yeah, we don't uh, always mention writers, but he's mentioned for always. a reason. Um, and then we'll be watching Children of Men from 2006, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, uh, based on the novel of the same name by P.D. James, uh, written in 1992. Uh, and then we will be watching the more recent, I mean, not that any of these are very old, but uh, more recent Mad Max Fury Road from 2015, uh, based on the other Mad Max films. It is the fourth one, but kind of, you know, they kind of, I don't they, think they they're all sequential. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, they totally ignore Thunderdome. They pretend that Thunderdome didn't happen, um, which is fair. And a lot of the flashbacks that happen in the movie are direct references to the second movie. Right, um, right. So the series was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy. This uh, version, and I think all of them were directed by George Miller. Uh, at the Oscars, this film won Best Editing, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup and Hair, Best Sound Mixing, Best Sound Editing, Best Production Design, and was nominated for Best Picture, Best Directing, Best Cinematography, and Best Visual Effects. It's very rare that a blockbuster will get that nomination for Best Picture. So it's kind of cool that I this know, got nominated. I was surprised. I mean, um, I understand all the all the wins and nominations um, just because it's a very aesthetic movie. Um, yeah. But I, I wouldn't consider it best picture. Nominee. No, no. And in fact, I, I think I didn't I didn't enjoy it nearly as much the second time around when I watched it. Um, I think I parsed through the things that I really enjoyed about it and the things that I didn't enjoy about it. Um, it's a good movie, but it's not. It's not much of a story, and we'll get into why that is uh, when yeah. we get into the individual breakdowns. It's a pretty uh, but great just to first say, watch, still, though. Still, still very impressive. Uh, very, very cool action, and kind of broke a lot of ground in a lot of ways for action pieces moving forward, uh, which mm -hmm. would be cool to see more of those get made rather than just superhero movies, because this is pretty inventive, <laughs> large-budget movie that wasn't a superhero movie, but... Uh, that is not what we're talking about right now. Right now, we should break down 28 Days Later from 2002. Jason, take it away. 28 Days Later from 2002. 28 days after the spread of a highly infectious virus that turns people into thoughtlessly violent maniacs, Jim wakes up in a hospital where he's been in a coma for over a month. As he navigates a world turned upside down, he encounters various survivors who wrestle with the purpose of survival and how to keep their humanity in the face of rage and imminent infection. All right, so for those of you uh, listening at home, uh, we are not, we actually took a 28 day break between when we recorded the intro <laughs> and now, uh, just to let you know. Uh, and now and, uh, we are actually in those 28 days way more happened than is probably physically possible in 28 days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I should, I should mention these are 28 days in 2020 time, uh, <laughs> which means that actually only two hours passed here. Uh, like I just went and got a cup of coffee and had a sandwich and now we're back, but it's actually 28 days in an other year time. Uh, mm -hmm. but yes, so we're talking about 28 days later, uh, which is a zombie film. Um, it's kind of a low budget. Not technically, they never like say zombie, but this is yeah, kind of where they start. Like, just not. It, it, I don't know if this is the first movie to do it, but at some it's just point, assumed. somebody decided it was very fashionable to not call zombies zombies, and it's. I don't, don't know. Use the Z word. 
it it makes me really you know what it the with the exclusion of that movie which uses it for humor um <laughs> that's Shaun of the dead for those Shaun of the catching dead. up i find it kind of grating and annoying that they never call them zombies like it's not it's not a copyrighted property um and at this point like the idea of zombie is so ubiquitous that if a, if a zombie apocalypse happened we would call it a zombie apocalypse mm-hmm. and it's not exclusive either nor is it like a social pressure thing um which would if it was i would actually almost understand it a bit more if everyone avoided it across the board uh because for if you didn't know the origins of zombies actually mm-hmm. go back to hoodoo and voodoo culture um and it's the idea of putting an undead person under a spell to essentially make them into like a personally controlled spirit. And you could do that through certain uh, voodoo rituals, which, you know, if everyone was avoiding the Z word for like cultural appropriation reasons, you know, I'd understand. But like it's kind of slowly morphed into this other thing that's so far away from that, that it's kind of even hard to call yeah, it it's its own the thing. original zombie. You know, it was start. It kind of started with George Romero, actually, that the night of the living dead is the one that really pushed it into yeah. our modern concepts of zombies, uh, which is even a surprisingly then, good and thoughtful film on its own. Yeah. Yeah. But even then, and actually the, the look in this movie is very heavily influenced by night of the living dead. Um, it's except it's kind in of, color, except it's in color. Yeah, that's right. The original one is in black and white, isn't it? Um, which is which was shot on like what like eight millimeter something like absurdly small, yeah. Um, but you know it kind of has that grainy look, that gritty look that's definitely become associated with zombie movies to the point where yeah, this film zombie almost movies looks like try it was, to emulate it all the time. Yeah, this one has a video feel, which I was trying to decide if it's if that was like a budgetary restriction or just like a really um, kind of gorilla. I'm thinking both low budget kind of thing because yeah it definitely has like um it, it's not an old film look it's like a old digital look that's just yeah. like bad video like uh like the old handy cam kind of style and obviously like the production design is very well done all the sets are pretty elaborate um but the the video itself is it it has an interesting quality that a lot of films don't have either you know even if they're trying to do like the old grainy film look or something like that this one is just like an old digital feel which is just it's interesting and i feel like that's it's part of that just the low budgetness of it yeah yeah it kind of fits it fits the mold really well for what you because it also wasn't found film um but also going back to those changing rules of or uh changing styles might be the best way to describe it uh, for what I was talking about with the evolution of what zombies are in cinema. But in this movie and in every zombie movie since, or even zombie show thinking about the walking dead, um, you're basically obliged to do a bit of world building when it comes to zombies, you have to establish real quickly how, how the infection yeah. is spread, what happens what to them. Yeah. What are the boundaries here? So, and where it came this, from, and where it came from. And that's like the opening scene in this movie, right? You mm-hmm. see like these people come in and release the monkeys. Um, I think they're animal rights activists. Um, yeah. And they release the monkeys and the monkeys have the virus and the virus spreads the humans and so on and Alex, so forth. Do you remember what the virus is? I don't remember what the virus is. What's the virus? So this is this is interesting because the rest of the movie is not like this. And 
and uh, you could probably speak a little more to this. Maybe it is on a on a subliminal level, but when they go to rescue the monkeys, the the scientist who's still there is like, no, 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 don't touch the monkeys. They're infected. It'll it, it spreads so quickly. They're infected, and uh, and they're just like ignoring him. They're trying to you know tie him up or whatever, and he's like, they're infected with rage. And that's the whole thing, because the, the first monkey that we see is, like, strapped to a table with, with nodes and, like, wires going into its head, and it's watching the news or just, like, clips of, like, really violent uh, war crimes and violent things happening. And so I don't know what the experiment was, but they infected it's, the monkeys with rage. It's 100% a piece of social commentary. There's, yeah. no way, it, there's no way it's not, especially knowing Alex Garland's work. Like, and that's probably the next thing to get into is is that there there is some, uh, you know, there's almost like a Rod Serling kind of uh, angle on this where he does try to bring it to more than a shock value in the film. Yeah, yeah. Zombie movies aren't necessarily horror movies. I feel like this one is more of a sci-fi fantasy movie. Like, there's scary parts, don't get me wrong. But it's not focused on suspense or... Um, or terror or anything like that. It's more about uh, examining the way in which society breaks down. Um, and through that breakdown, it's kind of looking at the effects of a culture that in the filmmaker's point of view, definitely from what we see in the script seems to be very violence oriented. Right. And towards the end, it kind of turns that into a, a question about human nature itself because, um, not to get too much into the end yet, but it it kind of starts to blur the line between the rage zombies and the and the humans who have started to lo- leave some of their humanity behind. Yeah, yeah, and they're bid to survive. Um, yeah, and they they go to very specific places in this movie uh, to explore that. Like he spe- very specifically goes to a church. Then he ends yeah. up at a drugstore. Then he ends up at an apartment building. Then they end up at like some ancient ruins. Uh, and then they end up out in the country, which is most of the places they end up. But those places are a aren't castle accidents. ultimately or not. Yeah. Like, like a mansion. Essentially. And and even uh, going back to uh, the first shot of um, Cillian Murphy in this film, who's just totally butt ass naked on a hospital room <laughs> table. Um, you know, it, it's kind of, it's basically he wakes up naked in a hospital and like, that's how everybody starts life these days. You wake, you wake up naked these in days? a hospital. At yeah. what point you, did we not you, come into you, life, but naked? Well, I mean, I meant in a hospital. That was oh, the, okay, point gotcha. I, the point I was really focusing <laughs> on was it wasn't a coincidence that he woke up naked in a hospital, um, which okay, by the way, gotcha. if you're like, Hey, was that, was that used from this movie in the start of the walking dead? The answer is yes, that that is a reference to this movie. Um, when Rick starts uh, the walking dead by waking up in a hospital after being shot and recovering for so many days. So yeah, that, I mean, that's kind of like a simulation for birth and then he kind of moves out, falls in love. They even, and, and to go back to the, the rules point, we even sacrifice a character to kind of establish how serious it is when someone gets bit or when someone gets blood on them or into yeah. like one of their orifices. <laughs> yeah, and that distinction becomes important later on. But yeah, yes, we do very. we have a little bit of a of a red shirt at the beginning. Um and but then the the more 
primary characters because it's interesting how it it almost slow builds to the point that it's getting to because that's one of the things that I think is interesting is that there is this kind of social commentary throughout the film but I don't feel like it's consistent I feel like it comes in in waves uh and it and it hits different different comments at different times so it goes through the whole family thing with our uh father-daughter team that uh we we stick around with for most of the film uh and that's kind of the emotional core of the film which I really liked um and it that also kind of brings up questions of what is our humanity what is survival for because that's part of the question that our our two protagonists are are asking is you know if the world has been destroyed and there's only a handful of of people not infected why are we surviving like what's what's the point and so then they you know they start to realize the importance of family until we get to you know the really big drama towards the end mhm mhm uh and they even say very pointedly at the beginning that they're only trying to survive uh, yeah at the start of this which is something that's said by multiple characters across these across these films um, and is a very reasonable starting position for characters uh, in a post-apocalyptic movie and that exploration for why do we continue to live, which um, to touch on a point that we're probably going to talk about at the end of the podcast um, the, in the overall notes, you know, is one of the reasons why we might find these post-apocalyptic movies so enthralling because the question of, why do we continue on surviving isn't one as prescient in our day-to-day lives when we don't have, there isn't a constant threat of death by zombie right around the corner. Uh, But when you press, when you, when you have that pressure on a person, you're asked to, you're you're constantly asked that question in a day-to-day life, in your day-to-day life. And suddenly you have to answer that somehow um, in a way that you might be drawn to if you don't live in a zombie infested world. Um, which which it just might explain the appeal of a movie like this to somebody else, because otherwise you're just seeing like a fantasy version of a really terrible world, which might be interesting, but isn't inherently in and of itself compelling. Yeah. Except to make you feel less bad about your own life, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, let's let's start to talk about the I guess the last act of the film, because uh, there we kind of take that question of of why do we survive to its, its really negative and dark aspect. Uh, because towards the end of the film, they end up with this uh, group, I guess they're all military, technically. Um, but what we come to find out, and kind of getting into spoilers here on this one, uh, but is that they are literally just looking for women. Because that's that's kind of the last thing that, that, that they want, that they don't have, is they want women. Um, to have them. And so that's what they end up fighting. And that's where things like go downhill really quickly. But that's kind of the other side of why do we survive and how do we survive? Uh, and yet if we're physically surviving by reproducing and yet we have lost all of those other, you know, cultural and uh, moral structures that we built that life on, what kind of survival even is that? Yeah, exactly. Um, Although one one of the uh, one of the uh, interesting things 
that I like about the rule set in this movie, Jonathan, and I feel like it does impact the themes and those questions that you were bringing up, is that they do mention multiple times uh, that eventually these uh, enraged infected will will starve to death. Like they don't have unlimited amounts of food. They only know how to essentially hunt to eat. Um, mm. And even if they start eating each other, that'll just make them lead to them dying faster. Um, so eventually like this, this is essentially a temporary thing. Like the zombies are not a permanent situation. And but the question is, is there enough of them to exactly you know, wipe out exactly. the people so who haven't been there, infected before there is, that point? There is another side. There is an end in right. sight. So the question is, what in what shape will humanity be on the other side? Will it be a deranged animalistic humanity that even though they don't have the virus in the blood, they're still infected by quote unquote rage, um, which is so on the nose. But anyway, Wait, yeah. um, and here's here, OK. Okay, as long as we're kind of here at the end, I do want to get into this because I think that they did a pretty good job of bringing up all these questions up until the end when they they start down a path that they don't complete, which is the point where um, Killian or Cillian, I'm not sure exactly how you say it, but I think in Celtic languages, C's are usually hard. Um, but Killian Murphy comes back to uh, to save the girls and he, I mean, for all intents and purposes, he turns into a rage monster in order to destroy these these military uh, guys who are trying to take advantage of them. And the way that that he starts to shoot those fights with Killian Murphy killing the uh, the military starts to look the same way that we see the zombie attacks. And so there starts to be this kind of line that's blurred between his his rage and the rage of the infected. Uh, and yet once they get out, he's fine. So they don't take that so far um, as to kind of question whether or not you can self infect yourself. Uh, but I did think it was an interesting thing that they brought up and then kind of dropped. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it is interesting. And there are parts of this that kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe a little incomplete. Um, mm-hmm. And not in a bad way. It's just the idea that. And look, the the reason the reason we mentioned Alex Garland was the writers because he's pretty famous for writing some other uh, sci fi films that have come out in recent years, including Ex Machina. Um, Annihilation and, and Annihilation. Those are probably the two biggest ones. I'm sure he's working on something else right now. Um, oh, here's Sunshine, too, which I think is in the same vein. Oh, very That's much older, so. though. Yeah. Uh, but but this is his kind of thing, and, and it's not stuff that's um, uh, that that's light on the commentary or light on the themes. So you, you can definitely see that he's putting like this really rich texture in here, uh, but it's not a hundred percent. It's it's definitely not his full extent of development. Like it's yeah. definitely like his still like early, and it's early hard because this. The movie does like kind of have this balance of kind of actiony, flashy entertainment with some of that philosophical undertone, but it's it's like you're saying, it's not to the point where some of his newer films 
that philosophical undertone becomes more of the overtone, like with Ex Machina and Annihilation. That's the bigger draw is what are the questions that he's going to raise about artificial intelligence, et cetera, et cetera. Rather here, it's like, oh, cool, a zombie movie. That also has a point as the kind of trail off. Yeah. And you, you know what? You know what I always forget about this uh, this movie is that it has mm. it has a happy ending. It does. Well, yeah, because that's the thing is it also has this uh, um, this village slash 10 Cloverfield Lane angle to it, which, OK, now real spoilers, uh, which is the fact that London or England is the only place on Earth that's infected with this. And the rest of the world quarantined uh, the uh, the island of Britain to itself and let it just kind of shrivel up and die like a like a tumor um, and then eventually they came in and, and started rescuing people. Uh, but meanwhile, all the people in England started turning on each other, infected and otherwise. Uh, yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, there is a sequel to this movie, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, which I, I saw that, I but have I did not, not seen, watch it. But I'm kind of browsing through the plot right now. Uh, it's called, it's called 28, 28 Weeks, weeks Later. later. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go. And it's essentially about like what happens after a bunch of the infected have started dying of starvation um, and other countries start coming in to kind of help try to help England get back on the, the streets. And of course, the another outbreak starts when somebody does something dumb and gets infected. Um, huh. I wonder if they spread it to the rest of the world at that point. They, that could be they, interesting. They do. They spread it to continental Europe. That's how the movie ends. There you go. There's the full. So they should have had what twenty eight months later. <laughs> uh, that Just is keep the next going. unit of time, unless Just they wanted to going. do twenty eight fortnights. But that that wouldn't work now. <laughs> Fortnite's been the the term Fortnite has been co opted. All right. Do you guys want to move on to Children of Men from two thousand six? Yep. All of me, guys. All all of all of the Jonathans. All right. Yeah. Let's move on to Children of Men from two thousand six. Jason, set us up. Children of Men, from 2006. In the near future, all women across the globe have become inexplicably infertile, therefore robbing humanity of any hope for a future. Theo Farron, a former activist, is recruited by a former colleague to help transport a miraculously pregnant woman to a mysterious organization called the Human Project that could help her raise the baby in safety, if it exists. But along the way, they have to escape the current political turmoil and discern which allies have their best interest at heart and who is looking to use the mother and infant to advance their own causes. Okay, Alex, this one is one that I know I have needed to see for a long time, but this was actually my first time watching it. Nice. Um, I've seen it a few times. And yeah, it was it was quite good. I think it's another one of those uh, films where it's like, this movie's been hyped up so much that I don't even know what to think about it while I'm watching it. Um, but yeah, it gave me it gave me a lot of um, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Uh, Cormac McCarthy vibes. Uh, like, similar to The Road um, in that it, it paints a really bleak picture and leaves a very vague ending. Uh, it's kind of a vague ending. It 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 gives you like a almost more of a poet poetic ending than like a solid resolution, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it doesn't tell you exactly what happened, but yeah. it gives you enough inf- information to kind of detect what's happened. Um, 
I, I mean, I, I, you, it's pretty clear she gets to the ship. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I'm just but saying, also, like, we don't know anything else about we, you what's, also don't what's know out what happens there. to, um, to our main character whose name I don't know. Um, nor do I think it name? entirely matters what his character is. He's just, he, you could call him Pia. man. You could call go. him man and it would not matter. Um, yeah, that's true. But yeah, it is, it is a wonderfully themed story. I actually really like that. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's one of Huron's best works, which is saying something. Um, cause yeah. he makes a lot of really good movies. Um, but it's definitely kind of like talking about hope. Right. Like that's that's kind of the big theme here. It's like hope versus despair and how people react to that. Um, And honestly, I think my favorite uh, my favorite uh, scene in the whole movie and the one that I think sticks out to me as like the the prime example of what they're getting at over the course of the movie, when the idea of a future has been ripped away from you, which is what a lot of post-apocalyptic movies are about. Um, mm-hmm. but this one's more like insidious. It's like, it's not, it's not that the world's really fallen apart so much as that the world hasn't seen there, there are no more children. So that, there's no more future now. Yeah. Um, and that messes with people. There's no hope for change or anything better. So they just all kind of like give up and wreck everything. Um, and somehow England, unlike like the reverse of 28 days later, England's like the only one that's still clinging on to some sort sense of or- order. Um, but the, yeah, anyway, back to my favorite scene, the one where, uh, they have the baby and everyone starts seeing the baby, both the rebels and the, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And the the soldiers and everyone stops fighting as they see the baby. Um, they all just stop and see that, oh, there is a future and it just, it stops everything, all the badness, all the despair, all of the acting out of depression and disillusion just vanishes in a heartbeat and then of course someone shoots a rocket and it's back to it but um that scene kind of sums up what's going on here for me um and i don't even see the true villain as being the government although they're real bad in this movie um the most insidious people are the ones who know about the baby and are seeking to use it um for their own their own ends yeah right in a really um that's that's really duplicitous because that ends up being a, a scene of just straight up betrayal. Um because they're they're acting like they're helping her, but really they they have a very clear uh agenda behind the whole thing. Um and that's like there's so much kind of going on behind the scenes. Again, it's a very kind of implicit movie where there's a lot of things going on that aren't ever completely explained. Um yeah. but there's a lot a little, of like there's a really good job of and, implication here. Yeah. Yeah, they don't yeah. they never give you like a great big overview of like this is when the last baby was born. Uh although that is mentioned in the movie. They actually do. Yeah. <laughs> they they do, but no no it's not like a narrator comes on and tells you exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Um and explains everything. You just kind of piece it together. Or even or even like the really I one of my favorite bits and this happens multiple times over the course of the movie is when people realize there's a baby and then um they're like, is it a boy? They they always ask if it's a boy. And then he always tells them it's a girl. And you just see the look on their face when they realize what that means. Um, because yeah. obviously that means there's another after after this woman has a baby, there's another woman who's capable of having a baby. That's, you know, that that's just extended the 
lifespan of the human race yeah. by twice over. But I mean, again, they don't even like get into, I mean, they don't go into, you know, well, because of this, the human race only has so many years before all the people who, you know, are alive are gone or, or anything like that. It's all just kind of, uh, I mean, once we get to, as much as I hate to say that, like, the baby is the MacGuffin, the baby is kind of the MacGuffin. Oh, the ba- the baby's 100% <laughs> the MacGuffin. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very thematically resonant MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Like you can you can have a MacGuffin all you want. It just has to um it, it just has to be thematically relevant to yeah. not be totally like, you know, just like silly or stupid. You know, if if you're having if you're having a heist movie that's themed about the idea of greed and what that does to somebody, then to have the MacGuffin just be a bunch of money makes perfect sense. Um, to right. have a movie about hope and the future and trying to grasp it when it might not be around, um, to have the MacGuffin be a newborn baby in a world without babies is perfect. That's the perfect MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. And the the other thing that's actually, as long as we're going down this this train of thought, uh, that makes the baby a really really good MacGuffin is it within the story it has its own. Um, oh gosh, this is not the, not the best way to put it, but like evolution because we have the pregnant woman. So she's already kind of a, uh, a ticking clock. And then we have the birth of the baby, which in itself is a very stressful situation. That's what they tell you at the doctor when you tell them you're pregnant. <laughs> you're a ticking clock. You're like a ticking clock. <laughs> um, I mean, that's essentially what they, what they're telling you when they tell you that you have a due date. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in this in in a story, when we come to a woman who's, you know, nine, eight, eight plus months pregnant, we know something's going to happen. Like we're not getting this. It's like Chekhov's baby at that point. Um, you can't bring uh, a pregnant woman into this story about uh, the world with no more fertility and not let us see the baby get born, um, which. OK, the way you depict the baby being born is up for grabs and is very. Uh, they made some strong choices on that one in this film. Uh, but then we have the baby itself, which as a MacGuffin is, you know, constantly at risk of putting itself out there because they're trying to conceal a baby, which is a very difficult thing to do. Um, not that I've ever tried, but man, I'd- it's so hard to hide a baby. <laughs> have you ever tried hiding a baby? It's hard, hard to do, man. Yeah. So just saying that all these things like, like the baby itself has an impact on the story as well as being the thing driving the story. Yeah, so it's relevant. It's a good MacGuffin. Uh, but let's talk about let's talk about some of the technical accomplishments in this movie. Um, yeah, because this is this is a long movie, but it's a movie that flows real dang well. Um, it's definitely over two hours by a good chunk. Uh, and it it just flows it uh, is one hour and 49 minutes, Alex. Is it really? It is really. That's impressive. I think a big part of it is actually that they're, it, a lot of it's choreographed in these really, really well-designed long shots. Yeah, it has some of the most famous long shots ever, like the one with the with the car getting, um, like, yeah, Molotov cocktailed. And- uh, the one where he's being chased around by the rebels in the uh, prison he's trying to escape. Um yeah. And he's uh, he, he runs into the subway cars 
that are wrecked out by the side. Those are really impressive. It's not, there's no attempt in this movie to make it a movie without cuts. There's definitely cuts. Right. Um, but it, it just uses the long shots super effectively to kind of convey like that hectic craziness that's going on. But also like the way it's just directed, you know, the way you're pointing that camera makes it the action really clear, which is great yeah. because like the specifics of the action are really complicated. And and speaking of the camera, like this film is shot by uh, Emmanuel Lubezki, a.k.a. Chivo, who, uh, you know, I think as we talked about way back in our episode on on Mexican AKA film. A.k.a. Chivo. Chivo. Yeah, that's his uh, actual. Like, that's I think his street his, name? I think that's his Instagram handle. Yeah, that's what they call uh, it. OK. Um, but he he shot Birdman. He shot The Revenant. Uh, he shot Gravity. Um, he, he has worked with Alfonso Cuaron and, uh, uh, oh gosh, see now, uh, Inaritu, uh, multiple times on their films, which are all these very flowy kind of films. So, uh, yeah, it's got that feel to it, uh, because it's coming from a guy who <laughs> that's kind of his technical signature, uh, at this point. And after this film, he goes on to kind of perfect that. Of course, Birdman made waves with its, uh, with its one shot. Exactly. Um, the other thing that I really enjoy about this movie, Jonathan, is the color work that's done. Um, mm-hmm. Partly just because, like, it's it's boldly done. Uh, every every scene has a very determined skew to it. Uh, if they want it cool, they keep everything very cool. If they want it warm, everything's very warm. Although there's like no warm scenes in the entire movie. Everything's very there, bleak. Yeah, I mean, this isn't even warm. This is more just kind of like like uh, it almost skews more like sickly uh warm green the but newspaper? when yeah when they kidnap him and they put him in the little box that's covered in yeah in newspapers that's what, that's what happens like yellow newspaper would make the light really warm but when you add a bunch of blue back into it to cool it down that's kind of what happens yeah you know, with that sickly green, green color which is kind of what exactly what they were going for um i will say the really, other warm scenes are in um michael kine's uh house that's true because it's it's a it's it's a point of safety and coziness when you're in there for a little bit it's the walls are decorated in memories of a better time that's how Mm -hmm. we get a lot of information about our main character's past there's Uh, a weed garden in the back there's a weed garden in the back uh of course you know there's still a reminder in there of the um of his wife who is mentally scarred is that what happened to her i can't remember the specifics Ah. I don't know. I don't she think they gave specifics. Into like a selective mutism or something like that. Anyway. Yeah, she's uh, in some kind of co- coma-like state. The other thing that's really impressive about the color work, besides just the fact that it's used well and it's used boldly, um, is the fact that it's consistent across these crazy long shots, which speaks yeah. both to the work done by the cinematographer and the work done by the colorist, because dang, is that hard. You sw- you're swinging that camera around, you're going to have light changing all over the place. Um, and it's hard enough to get, keep that consistent in camera, yeah. not to, let alone to think about the, uh, the uh, once you add on a bunch of uh, lift gamma gain and color skew effects to a look, you turn that camera around, it's going to look totally off. Um, yeah. And obviously you're working with some of the best cinematographers around. I'm sure the dit on this uh, 
was amazing. That's the person supervising some of the color workflow. Digital on set. imaging technician. In, in tandem with the cinematographer. And then the uh, colorist on the back end. Obviously, the teamwork between them paid off because they, they incorporated it into how they shot and they made it work. And dang, did it pay off. Um, yeah. Because the color's consistent and it's just beautiful across these crazy long shots. Um, I do want to bring up because I th- I think I'm, I might have forgot to to say the the Oscar noms for this film at the at the top, but you did. Uh, this was a, adapted best nominated for uh, best adapted screenplay, best cinematography, and best film editing. So that goes into all the things that we're talking about. Like these are these are top notch here. Um, I kind of want to uh, talk about because I think it's interesting. One of the things that I uh, like kind of stood out to me just as like a first time watch. I know most of the film is kind of in this, uh, uh, actiony kind of, uh, cat and mouse sequence that starts after, uh, we find the woman and we have to protect the baby and get away from the, uh, the political activists and we have to get away from the military and all that stuff. But before that, when we're just kind of seeing Theo's life in, the post-apocalypse, I thought that was really interesting because it kind of, it has this uh, almost like a classic dystopian kind of sense to it. It wasn't like over the top. It was like, it was like people still trying to live their lives, but clearly like there's just despair and depression everywhere. There's, there's no reason for most normal everyday activities to stop. Yeah. Um, So there's kind of like, and there's like this dissonance because it's like, well, the human race is doomed. But also, like our day to day lives aren't. Yeah, we that still have effective. our lifespans. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's this weird dissonance that you see in most of the characters, and you see it create like these weird reactions, like this kind of like just hangdog exhaustion on our main character. You see it in the rebels how they react to things, and the um, the government and like this authoritarian anger. Uh-huh. Uh, and you see it in the society too. Like it's torn in multiple directions. Do we go on? Is there a point in going on? And it's not yeah. something you normally have to think about, which again is one of the reasons why a post-apocalyptic fantasy is so interesting to people who don't live in a post-apocalypse. Although we do live in 2020, <laughs> kind of close. Um, yeah, and then we kind of, you know, we go through our whole chase where we're, we're trying to protect the future, right? Essentially, like we were talking about with the baby and the, and the the thematic resonance of that is protecting the future. And then, again, just to kind of get into a little bit of spoilers, but ultimately, um, they reach this this ship that's going to take them away. And uh, the ship is called the Tomorrow. So that's, you know, significant, clearly. Uh, a little bit on the nose, but it works. Um, but I think that the the... The vaguity that I was referring to earlier is the idea that um, there, the world building is so implicit that, you know, I think it's done really well for for a lot of things like the the quietus uh, drug. That's literally just a um, I don't know if it's government issued or what, but like everyone seems to have a case of this uh, drug that just, you know, euthanizes people um, mm-hmm. and. But but the thing that they that they are really vague about is the the human project. What was your take on the human project? 
Uh, it was vague, but it kind of needed to be vague. Um, which makes sense to me. It was kind of just a stand-in for like an appeal to humanity. For some reason, from the second they say it and from the way everyone acts about it, you just know that it's something good. But it's also, it, you know what it kind of sounds like to me? The, um, you know how everyone in zombie movies are, is always talking about a safe zone? Like if we yeah. can just get to Montana, we'll be in the safe zone. It's like yeah. that. It's like you, you know exactly what it is. You don't need the details on it. You just know it's something good and it's a hope. It might be a false hope. Um, and it remains a false hope for uh, the early part of the movie until it's revealed that this woman is pregnant. Um, as, uh-huh. I'm sorry, I remember nobody's name from this movie and I'm not gonna. I apologize. <laughs> um, but it, 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 in a lot of ways, I like that they called it the human project just because it sounds like a, you're striving for hu- not necessarily humankind, before the essence of humanity yeah, um, and like the positive sides of humanity, right? Like the ability, the capacity to be kind um, or generous, uh, all of which seem to have evaporated up in this de- desperate, despairing world. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you say that, um, you know, it's, it's a hope. It's potentially a false hope because what they're doing is they're trying to get to the human project, but there's a lot of like, uh, cloak and dagger involved with it like they talk to someone who talks to someone who talks to someone who talks to someone who talks to us and so that's the information that we're going off of um so it's like really tenuous um and every time they bring it up they're like you know we've got the baby we're getting her to the human project does the human project exist i sure hope so um but as you said it that way which makes sense um i realized that that's that's an element in all three of these films is there's there is that safe zone or that that one thing of hope that may not be real. It may, you know, turn out to to just be false. I mean, in 28 days later, getting to the military post where the where the call was coming from turned out to be uh, a freaking Venus flytrap um, and that kind of thing. So I think that that is a really interesting element that is is very common in these post-apocalyptic type of films. Uh, but my my take on the human project in particular was. I, I wasn't sure if it was something like that, like a a political organization where they could find asylum, or if it was like these rumors of this place where there are women still giving birth and there's like there is a community of where life is still going on and and uh uh you know procreation is still happening. Uh but again it's it's so vague that you can't really say one way or the other what it is. Exactly, um, which is good because once you start getting into the problem, the problem that I see, Jonathan, if you start getting into the weeds of specifics or try to introduce characters mm-hmm. about who about who is in the human project and who you have to meet, um, then you're opening up a world of complications that's just going to distract from this otherwise fairly streamlined thematic story. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's really not that many characters in this movie. Like, there's a lot of extras, sure. Um, but there's not that many characters. There's not that many players. A lot happens, but it's fairly streamlined. It's fairly quick. Um, and it's about as complicated as it needs to be and not a smidge more. Uh, yeah. And that's good. That's good. That's what you want. It's you, it's it's very thematic in a distilled fashion so that you can get to those themes without being hit over the head with them 
but at the same time so that you're not drowning in like this sea of ambiguity. Yeah. And just as a matter of speculation, cause I don't know enough about the source material, but since this is the only one that we're talking about, that's based on a book, I wonder how much clearer the book is, or if these are, um, editorial decisions made by, uh, Alfonso Coran to, uh, kind of leave some of that vaguety in there and, and make that, more an element of the film because obviously you have to make those decisions anyway when you're adapting a novel. Uh, but I don't know if that, that mysterious element is part of the novel or if the novel did take more time to, uh, build out that world and some of those questions. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's the kind of thing that you have space in a novel to do. You can, you can fill out and have that complexity. Um, and you can have stuff in a novel that's, you can have pages and pages of just description of like the human project just because that's interesting to see. Yeah. Um, but you know, in a movie, especially an hour and a 49 minute movie, that's this streamlined action. You can't waste a single gosh darn moment. Can't yeah. waste anything. Um, which is kind of like efficiency is like the heart of movie making in a lot of ways, how much meaning and, plot and all of it can we pack into a single moment of a single frame single scene single cut um because we we have a lot to get through and we want to do it as fast as possible and get as much into this movie and also it's one of those things where you expect to be entertained and be fed information at steady stream while you're watching a movie if you slow it down at all and just have empty space sometimes you can bore the audience and that's never good as well yeah I agree, but I I will say that I think of the three films we're talking about today, this is the least, um, like, action driven. Like it has it it is almost nonstop oh, action, is but I the think least uh, action driven. It brings the most. Uh, but that's that's uh, by a very thin line. Yeah, yeah, but I do think this one is you know, you you market this film more as a this is a thought experiment of humanity more than you do with the other two, which are, you know, just kind of adrenaline pumped. But speaking of streamlined and adrenaline pumped, shall we move on to Mad Max Fury Road? Let's do it. All right, Jason, rev it up. Mad Max Fury Road from 2015. Max Rokitansky finds himself captured by a fanatic, post-apocalyptic cult run by a tyrant named Immortan Joe. When Amorton Joe's concubines escape to find a better life in the green place, Max gets swept into an adrenaline-fueled race to freedom. Let's talk about the the stuff that this... We're, we're going to have a big discussion about the story in this movie and the plot. Yeah. Uh, but before we get to all of that, let's spend some time gushing about like the visuals of Mad Max Fury Road and the action and the directing, because all of it's just done phenomenally i can't remember mm-hmm. off the top of my head who shot this jonathan but do you know i feel like you know okay it's john seal i'm not familiar with by name oh wow he's done a lot of stuff a lot of variety of stuff so his his known for I'm, list on yeah. imdb is mad max fury road the english patient witness and the talented mr ripley wow so there you go that's interesting especially because i believe this one was actually shot digitally um oh definitely yeah definitely 
Uh, and, and they did a lot of really cool work on it. Obviously, the camera work itself is just really impressive. Uh, they so let's, do. Let's talk about that because the big buzz in, uh, you know, some of the filmmaking YouTube and and uh, like American Cinematographer and stuff. The big thing about the cinematography in Mad Max Fury Road is because this is such a fast paced movie. Um, I mean, it's it's insane. These when the action sequences start, it's insane how much is crammed in there visually. Uh, but there's just in like order, a billion angles for every. Yeah. For every every scene, because there's so much going on. There's like you have the inside of the car, the outside of the car, different seats within the car. Um, you've got you've got the outside of the car, people climbing under cars and over cars, uh-huh. cars uh, blowing while, up and flipping over, racing, and hitting crazy other cars. action happening. And and it's everything's just crystal clear, like everything's covered and the mm-hmm. direction that everything is shot at and then editing together. So big props to the editing team, because this this more than almost any other movie that I've seen win best editing, this movie really deserved best editing. Yeah. Um, because it's just it's just crystal clear. You know exactly what's going on at all times. Um, whether you're going to a wide or a close-up, um, you understand what's happening and what's going on, uh, which is doubly important because one of our characters is like a dang mute. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but one of the other things that, that helps from... The production angle uh, is that in those scenes and almost throughout the entire movie, every single shot is center framed. So whatever you're supposed to be looking at is shot dead center in the middle of the frame. They put like a little dot on the monitor. And so everything, whether it's, you know, a face or a gun or a car or whatever, is right in the middle. So while you're watching the film, your eyes stay on exactly what they need to be watching all the time. So whatever you're cutting to you're already looking where you need to be looking. You don't, you're not, you know, scanning the thirds lines and, you know, trying to figure that out. Even if that's like a subconscious thing, this movie moves so fast that you really don't even have time for that much thought. Yeah, exactly. You just kind of going with it. So it's nice that they put that on that instinctual level. Where you're just automatically looking where you need to be for every single shot. That's yeah. perfect. Um, some of the other cool Anecdotes from this movie include a cinematographer who just wanted, uh, they really wanted a shot from one of those top of those war poles, those little wiggly waggly poles. <laughs> yeah. And so he just had himself strapped to the top of the pole himself with a camera. Golly. Uh, to shoot it. Those uh, things seem like, so unsafe in the first place. I feel like just putting the camera up there would be better, but I guess yeah. it's easier to control by hand. Like you could do it by robot remotely. Um, but you know, you're, you're, that thing's whipping around so fast. I think you need more precise controls than a robot can offer. Put a GoPro uh, and, on a stunt guy and call it a day. Yeah. The other thing that I really enjoy about this movie uh, is, uh, from a cinematography standpoint, is the way the day for nights uh, were shot in this oh, movie, yeah. which I know because it was one of the few issues of the ASC magazine that I actually read right. um, for my subscription. Uh, and it, it, it discussed, uh, how to get that effective day for night look. And I looked for it very specifically this time through when I watched the movie. Um, Oh, it's pretty, and you, it's very obvious obvious when they were shooting day (laughs) for night one, they blue gelled the crap out of it. I don't think it was shot with the blue gel. I it's digital, so there's no need to, so they just did a blue skew and post. Um, but it gives like all the way it's almost monochrome. Yeah, they give, they give, it looks like a silent film. Uh, mm-hmm. But it gives the effect 
very clearly. The other thing they did was actually just overexpose the shots, um, which is the giveaway, by the way, if occasionally you're looking at a day for night shot and there's too much, there's something blown out in there. Like I think there's one point where Nux's head is blown out in a day for night shot because he's totally bald and like covered in silver paint. Uh, yeah, right. So he's just blown out, but it still looks dark. Uh, but the big difference and the key to getting like a good day for night shot is actually typically, especially when shooting digital, is ex- overexposing, overexposing ever so slightly, because that means that you'll end up with less contrast. And that's really the big difference. That's the thing that makes it really hard to make a day shot mm-hmm. look like a night shot. You can make shots darker, um, but the moon does not cast shadows near as harshly as the sun yeah. does. Um, so you have to soften those shadows up. So how do you do that? You raise the, uh, you raise the exposure up. So hopefully nothing's blowing out. Um, but all of the light values are packed closer together in a less contrasty, uh, range. And then you can tuck that all down and post, bring it all down and then just make it blue as hell, which is what they did, which works well for this movie. Cause this movie is comic book colors. This it's movie is either- orange and teal or is, uh, Orange you know, and teal out the wazoo. Orange and teal the movie. It, it's it's super, super skewed, even more so than Children of Man, very clearly. But also, this is very clearly like a fantasy post-apocalyptic world. This is a yeah. uh, this is a comic book. Basically, this is probably, yeah, the most fantasy out of all three of the ones we've watched. Oh, I mean, obviously, yeah, any apocalypse movie is, a, is fantasy, but which is this crazy one is like, considering how the Mad Max series started which i don't i don't know if you've seen the original mad max i haven't yet uh it's you know how like godzilla goes right off the the freaking rails after certain times but even though it's a fantasy series like the first one is like solid really deep and meaningful and like should be in the criterion collection Uh like the same deal with with mad max like the first one's much more artsy um and thematic and then it just goes wild after that it was so it was originally like a australian series that was done by george miller essentially it was like an indie production uh, and then it got popular so they did it in the u.s um in the 80s and there's nothing that says u.s 80s put the the stamp on this than mad max thunderdome uh um, oh gosh yeah this one was much more like the second one thunder road uh no it's not thunder road what's the second one it might be Thunder Road. Uh, no, it's uh, the Road Warrior. The Road Warrior. That's it. Yeah, where uh, Max stumbles into someone else's problem and then uh, solves it, um, which is what this movie basically is. Um, uh, let's let's <laughs> talk about the world, Jonathan, um, because the world is definitely a very constructed one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty interesting. It does require quite it's a pretty bit. Basic. It, it it's very simple and put yeah. forward uh and it's it's definitely into that fantasy realm uh where you know like ah we're the war boys like once you start calling factions like yeah, something no, you you're into the, you're into the fantasy world you get this the is a idea fantasy that kingdom. there's a king there's a king there's his his army, like uh, there's his zombie general. army and then all the all the plebeians yeah yeah exactly um the uh and that's kind of where it stops like he's got his well, other and friends and then the concubines like which the, are very very important the 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 costume design is really neat like it tells me a lot more about a lot of the characters than anything else like his two lieutenants who help him chase down like the bullet guy 
and that oh, other yeah, dude yeah, with yeah. the swollen feet and the nose and the nose uh, like they their characterization is like entirely through their costumes and that's it um they're also like not even they're hardly introduced like the bullet guy comes out of nowhere all of a sudden um they're but then he's also gone cool. just as quickly so yeah yeah they're just there to look cool uh, but a lot of this is just really kind of simple spectacle. Um, the design of the world is really cool, and I think it's what makes the world work. Because without good design, this world is kind of s- silly. Um, you kind of have to see the case with a lot of fantasy. It. Yeah, if you don't, yeah, you got to yeah. sell it right. Yeah, especially with with fantasy like this. This is very visual oriented fantasy. Like, I don't think if you were to write like a prose novel about this kind of fantasy, it wouldn't. It would sound way dumber. And they drove than, through the desert still more. I mean, you could you could write that scene and make it pretty exciting. But like the. Like like the I think there's the war boys chant where they're like praying for Valhalla. Um, yeah. And it's like you clearly just ripped words from the, the pre-apocalyptic world. Yeah. it's also chance. really interesting that they chose like Valhalla because there wasn't as we're, like they're as in, we're they're probably, in Australia like yeah um, but as we're as we're about to get into like this film doesn't have like a ton of depth so like there there are certain like throws in there of like uh, artistic uh, illusions um, like the way that we are introduced to um, the concubines when Mad Max finds them is, you know, it's almost this kind of like Greek goddess type of deal. Um, and then the same thing with the with the Valhalla and the this mythology that's just, again, touched upon, but never really delved into. Uh huh. Um, and it does require a bunch of suspension of disbelief, uh, Jonathan, because here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here we go. So, how old would you say Max Rokotowski is in this movie? Max. Um, like his max age. Are you talking about like in his whole world or just like in this one movie? In this one movie. Because here's the thing. It's a, it's a part of the series, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's heavily alluded to even in the beginning of this movie. In the start of this movie, he says he was once a cop. Right? Oh, that's, so, yeah. And they have the kid flashbacks that are never also explained. It it connects him. That's kind of part of the second movie. I assumed. Yeah. Yeah. He becomes friends with the kid and the kid's still alive at that movie. It kind of implies they died. Um, And that Max wasn't able to save him. But. If they didn't put the, the parts in there at the beginning where they connected him back to the original Mad Max character, who was a cop, um, who wasn't just a cop but was a cop book while the apocalypse started. Um, okay. And was old enough to have a kid. Um, and it's heavily implied that yeah, there are no cops in this world as it currently exists. Um, so even if you don't have to look back at the other movies and just look at this one, if he says he was a cop, that means he was old enough to be a cop when the apocalypse happened. Um, which means that most of the people in the movie were alive in some way, shape, or form, and old enough to understand what happened when the apocalypse happened. So why the hell are these war boys, some of whom are probably like in their 20s, so 
like into this cult. Like I get cults are really convincing, but like they fell into this crazy cult and religion real freaking well, fast. I will say again, like the timeline is is kind of iffy, but part of the point of this this whole regime is that um Immortan Joe is literally spawning these kids to be part of his army. Uh and so I don't know if that's if that plays into it, like they were literally born into this. Uh, but that's that's kind of a big deal that, you know, he's he's rearing up children in order to take over and become warlords of them of their own. Exactly, exactly. But like max max the max number of years he could have been doing that is like maybe 20. Um, which is crazy. Anyway, the point the point being that if you try to look at this world with any amount of logic in it, um, it kind of starts to fall apart. Uh, so yeah. it's not it's not a movie. I don't think it's a movie that's meant to be thought about very much. Um, it's just meant to be watched and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And, and from that from that perspective, like it achieves what it wants to set out and do. Um, but from the thinking perspective, it doesn't hang on there. Like the if you look at the world of 28 Days Later, it's explained and it's explainable because it happens in a fairly short period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they relative and relative worlds. to the present. Yeah. They, they set very clear rules about how that world works. Um, in children of men, you know enough information to get you through the story, um, but they don't spend much time outside of that going into depths and details about how things work. Um, in Mad Max Fury Road, you, you just kind of get like, a list of cool stuff that could happen in the fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Which then, I don't think yeah, is necessarily does, a bad thing. It's just to point out that it's different than the other two movies that we looked at. Right. But, and what I will say though, is that the, the very few times that it does try to do, you know, some kind of commentary, like I don't even know if it's commentary, um, but it, it makes it, not very effective or at least not the focus because part, I mean, part of the, a big part of the film is these women who are trying to liberate themselves from this oppressive regime, uh, trying to not become, uh, these quote unquote breeders, uh, to have children for the, the King guy. Um, and so they're running away, which is cool and all, but like that, the, the feminism or like, liberation part of it is never really like the point the point of it is the cool cars chasing each other through the desert yeah exactly exactly Um, and yeah and there's Um, there's other things that kind of that kind of fall apart like there's uh the detect the the defective war boy who again we're never really told exactly how the the brainwashing comes apart or comes about so it's it's probably standard cult tactics yeah. And and the other kind of thematic element is, again, like we see with all of these apocalyptic films, there's this element of survival that Mad Max comes in and he's just like hardened to the core. He's going to he's going to leave anyone behind who's not helping him survive at that exact moment. Uh, and then he has to, you know, develop this amount of loyalty to them. Um, and then they're learning loyalty as the redheaded girl falls in love with the zombie boy and all that kind of stuff. But again, it's, it's like so surface level for all of that stuff that it never, it never kind of like hits this really resonant note. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's uh, yeah. Anyway, well, that's that's we, the world. To, let's talk about to, the, to the, the story. To the let's talk about the story because yeah. it needs to be talked about. Uh, the story is real simple. Uh, <laughs> and it kind of they're doesn't, back again. A Mad Max tale. Basically, basically that's it. Um, (laughs) it's, it's really simple, but it's enough to fuel like two hours worth of, of car chases. Uh Um, but I assume this will be part of the summary, but I mean, yeah, we start, we start running away from this oppressive regime to Mm -hmm. the safe zone as we've been talking Uh about. It turns out, turns out there's no safe zone. Safe zone is gone. So So we turn around and go bad guy and head back. Yeah. We go straight back, uh, through all the bad guys. Um, so it's really, it's, it's running away, turning around and then kind of going into obstacles that we were just trying to avoid and trying to survive them. It's, it's like when, it's like when your dog gets bored, bored of going the same direction around the block (laughs) after day. So you just, you just run them around it backwards and suddenly they're like, what are these smells? They're in a different order. Um, if you don't believe me, you don't have a dog. Um, but that's, that's how they do. Uh, yeah, so that's the story. Very simple. Uh, Max is in the story. Uh-huh. It's definitely not his story. He just kind of shows up. He like gives like a voiceover about how he how he's just here to survive. His uh, backstory is completely inconsequential, except yeah, that it keeps then, him from getting killed one time. I almost wish that they took the flashbacks out because like they don't they don't matter. They don't, they don't do anything. Like it's never talked about. It's just like a, it's just like a hiccup of his. Like it's, it's, I guess a flaw. Yeah. Um, I guess maybe he feels guilty about not saving this kid. So that's why he's going to help save these girls. Uh, but But again, I feel like some of this is like that. It's that branding thing that we see with so many franchises where it's like, this could be its own movie, but if we put Mad Max on it and throw in just enough references to the other films, we can get a little more people to pay attention. Yeah. So here's the question, Jonathan. Does does Max Rokotowski, because that's his name, um, have an arc in this movie? Yes. Okay, what is what is that arc? Uh, I think, again, the, the arc is him going from completely self-sufficient to having some level of empathy and loyalty with these women, which, of course, he, he walks out on. But I think that's just kind of his James Bondy nature. Uh, that he just kind of walks into situations and then walks out of them. But, you know, like within that, he he kind of has this this loyalty arc. I don't know that anyone else has an arc. Um, No. Well, actually, no, I'm going to I'm going to walk you down a road. So Max has has kind of has an arc, but it's a very small arc. And yeah. it's definitely not enough of an arc to carry the movie or call him the protagonist. Right. Like his. OK, granted. His, his his arc kind of resolves itself by the time they reach the not really safe safe zone, right? Yeah. Like and it also feels like it's just him. a return. Like like the, yeah. What the what those voiceovers do do is they show us that he did have some loyalties and he was burned, and uh, then he just kind of gets back to it. So it's kind of a a net zero. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so then a lot of people. You know, the big internet opinion is it's not Max's movie, it's Furiosa's movie, which I'll grant right. you that she's an interesting character and she's good to watch on screen. She's got the most screen time, probably. She's got definitely the most screen time, definitely more lines than Max by like yeah. a mile. But, but does she have an arc? 
No, I don't think she has an arc. I think the she war boy have has an arc. An arc. At all. Maybe she doesn't have an arc at all. She she starts the movie not liking a Morton Joe and wanting to save the 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 concubines, and that's what she does by the end of it. Uh-huh. Um, some of the concubines almost kind of have an arc. One's really different by the end of the movie in that she's dead. Um, one one reverts. She says, "Take me back." Yeah, but that's also like not resolved in any way, shape, or form. No one talks to her about it afterwards. Yeah, it's just I like mean, another moment of action. I don't even, know which, I don't even know which one she is. There's I don't the know any one, of them. The black hair there's, one, the white like hair the one. There's like the one who's in love with the uh, with the with the war boy, but that's about it. Yeah. But here's the thing: the only person with a significant backstory or a significant arc to 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 move a story along is Nux. It's the war boy. Yeah, it he, is. He's got the most interesting story by a long shot. He starts uh-huh. off like injured and totally, totally brainwashed by this cult. And slowly over the course of uh, events, he has a series of trials and challenges, grows as a person, makes new friends and allies, has an enemy and defeats him. That, Alex, like, I that, have a hot take. <laughs> what's the hot take? Nux's story is the uh, is the arc that Finn should have had in uh, Star Wars, the the first yeah J. J. no Abrams that's a hundred percent yeah no, that's a hundred percent yep it's is it he's a drone he's a drone who breaks away and becomes his own person but we get to see how that that transition from diehard loyalty turns into a completely selfless loyalty to uh to the others um the other protagonists yeah it's 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 an interesting a, a series of events when the turncoat ends up being the most interesting person in the entire movie but he really is mm-hmm. he really is only because he has the biggest change of heart and in that change you reveal more of his character because i think i think what's most interesting about him is that he never I, I don't think he had much of a concept of himself as an individual when this movie started and as he ch- has this change of heart over the course of the film you see him kind of wake up to the idea that he exists in this movie. Uh-huh. And the, yeah, and it's also really interesting because again, they do, again, it's an, another another part of the world that's never completely explained, but you just pick up pieces like the idea that he's already half dead. That's why I keep calling him a zombie boy because he's already like kind of alive and he he needs constant like blood infusions from fully living people to stay alive and um but they never they don't get into that. I mean, they don't they don't talk about the um, midichlorians in that sense. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I mean, you don't know how much of that is like, you know, uh, that kind of uh, ex machina like this. When does this robot become a full human kind of a, a story, this Pinocchio idea? But it is like that along those lines. And, and we know enough of that kind of story to fill in the blanks, really. Yeah, exactly. Um, which I don't know. I guess it just wasn't as important to have these big character arcs in the movie. Like they're just functional, right? Like uh-huh. they're and and they're kind of like barely functional at that. <laughs> uh, like they're just enough to get like the car chase going, and that's like it. Yeah, yeah. And then the car chase kind of fizzles out on its own because they find out about the the other place with. I mean, even the other uh, mothers or whatever they call them with the seeds and all of that. That's not even an arc in itself. And I don't no, know that's that like, any that's of those really people dangling. make it back. <laughs> no, I think almost all of them die, if not all of them. Um, and even then, like, 
there, it was kind of really disappointing and really unclear too when we got to the safe zone and we heard that it was just gone. Alex, okay, there is one shot that I find really interesting that I keep that I I remember from the first time that I saw this film and and then when I watched it this time I was actually surprised at how short it was. Um but it's it's the most interesting piece of world building to me that's also never explained, but it is during that night scene right before they get to the quote unquote safe zone. Um and you see the these like people I guess they're people, but like walking on stilts in this bog. No, it's just it's just it's just scenery. That, that's it. They don't. But explain it was it. so interesting. It was so interesting. I would love to have had something in there, but nah. And nah. all we get is though it, is is when they say the safe zone, they're like, um, because because that area where those people are walking on stilts is part of. What what they say, you know, you you drove right through it. That was the safe zone. That was the green area where there were all these crows and these like scavengers. So it's like, yeah, and they it's said thrown and in the there like that. Came. But I was yeah. like, why isn't that the movie? That was so cool. Yeah, yeah. See, here's the cool thing about fantasy worlds and uh, and any both post apocalyptic and not is that you have complete control over the world to shape it however you want. Mm-hmm. And it seems especially in, in something this one, like this when it's like it's limited to the movie. So literally the filmmakers yeah. are making whatever they want. Yeah. And they had uh, they had the ability to make whatever they want, but they chose to just fill it up with like vaguely cool things mm-hmm. instead of. And you can make cool things still, but you can also make them relevant to what's going on with your character's lives personally. There's a reason that fantasy stories focus in on this one person because the and the entire world always seems to swirl around them because you can craft the world to fit what's going on with your character's internal struggles however you want which makes it really cool. Uh, okay, Alex. Uh so but just in this to one, this, I don't think that happens. Yeah. Um but just to throw this out here cuz we're talking about how to create a, an effective MacGuffin. And so in this film I would say that the uh the safe zone the green place is the MacGuffin. And yet we don't learn anything about the green place except that it is green until we get there and we find out that it is not. And so, sure, the MacGuffin itself has something to do with the story because the place they came from is is uh, in drought and the water is controlled by the despot. And that's how he has control over all these people because he turns the water on and off when he wants. Um, and yet their goal is to turn it into a an oasis. Uh but if we knew more about the green place before we got there, it would probably be more interesting. And if we like built it up, then it would be even more of a letdown when we do get there. And, you know, but we don't we don't know anything about it until we get there and then it's not there. And so we just again, we just have this like faint glimmer of what might be by the time we get back. And they're like, OK, cool. Now we can start yeah. this oasis. But we're never going to yeah. see that. And Mad Max leaves. So we assume that the next film which spoilers, there's actually a new film slated, um, Mad Max, the wasteland, but that one's not going to take place in this place. So it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. 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 Uh, but that's, that's just how, uh, how Mad Max do, I guess. It's how Mad Max do. Um, so last, last trivia bit to throw out there. This is sad. Um, just about Mad Max before we leave it 
is uh, Hugh Keys Burn Beern. Hugh Keys Beern. I don't know exactly how to say that. Uh, the guy who plays Immortan Joe uh, actually passed away this week or last week by the time this comes out on uh, December 1st. So it's uh, yes, kind of sad. Right. But um, as I mean, as a character, he was a very provocative uh, fantasy antagonist. Yeah, no, he was he was an interesting antagonist, but more of in a figurehead kind of way in this particular yeah. movie. Yeah, like but in that, I mean, yeah. yeah. And in that sense, like he kind of existed to be a uh, an imposing visual, which he was that. Uh, but with that, shall we move on into overall and talk about the apocalypse? Yeah, let's wrap this up. Three iterations. All right. So as we kind of mentioned before, this is essentially like a very dark version of fantasy mm-hmm. is what we're getting and we're talking about post-apocalyptic movies is this essentially a subgenre, which means we've done like a lot of subgenre this year <laughs> um but but it's it, interesting because it, it toes a line kind. between um like fantasy and dystopia because it's not there's there's dystopian well, I would elements say dystopia i would say dystopia is kind of part of fantasy well maybe we should stop using the word fantasy let's use the parent okay. term: speculative fiction okay that's the parent term. That's the yeah. all fantasy is speculative fiction, but not all speculative fin- fiction is essentially fantasy. Um, right. So something something more like Mad Max, you could call fantasy. Something more like Twenty Eight Days Later, you could call speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I give you that. And and yeah, speculative fiction. Yeah, not having to be fantasy in that it could also be you know like hard sci-fi or that kind of thing. Yeah, um, sci-fi also fits into the the same category. Right. But I'm just thinking like in the, I guess more in like a classical form of dystopia, uh, you know, if you're thinking um, George Orwell or, uh, um, oh gosh, why am I blanking? Huxley, uh, you know, those are more of like, I guess almost like political dystopia, but it's the same kind of track that modern YA has gone, which YA is almost synonymous with dystopia at this point. Um so I, I think it's interesting because these don't really fall that direction, except for maybe Children of Men has some of those political dystopia elements to it. Um, and I guess Mad Max in like a really extreme form of totalitarianism uh, mm-hmm. and also but put in a in a different world completely. So uh, but yeah, it does. It kind of treads this line that are all they all have in common with each other, but it's kind of distinct from those other genres that we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's it, it's got its unique actions of it. it. It kind of takes like the creeping existential dread of day to day life and cooks it up to eleven, if that makes sense. Like it's a boiled down, concentrated version of that big "What you going to do with your time there, bud?" Uh, yeah. question uh, that I think everyone relates to in some way, shape, or form, uh, especially when your time the limit on your time is more prescient than it otherwise would be, which I think is, is connects to the reason of why anyone would want to watch something that's so inherently dark. Um, it could, especially cause so many of these post-apocalyptic movies, you would think would hew closer to that horror line, especially the zombie ones, but they just kind of don't, uh, yeah. like 28 days later, scary, but I wouldn't call it a horror film. Um, 
even though it has I zombies would, in it. I would it. probably put it in the horror category, but I wouldn't. I would say horror adjacent. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it, it probably has more suspense thriller elements to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I feel like that's part of what makes it interesting. One of the other things I found interesting to look at for uh, this episode's uh, films was the question of how long the apocalypse had happened ago. Uh, uh-huh. Like, in 28 Days Later, obviously it was 28 days ago. Uh, but and the then, amount of destruction that happened in 28 days was kind of yeah, astonishing. But, yeah, but that's that's the other thing that I was going to get to. So 28 days later is like a few days. Mad Max is like years, if not decades. Uh-huh. Um, and very technically, in Children of Man or Children of Men, it's in the future. Like it hasn't happened yet. It's a couple uh, of years though, because they put a date on it. It was like 2050 or something. Not. Not super far. I mean, they, they're, yeah, yeah, it was sometime in that century that everyone left alive would die. Yeah. Um, or would, would probably, by statistical standards, would probably be dead by. Yeah. That, the Chosen yeah. Men kind of assumes that the, the thing started happening at the time that the movie was released in 2006 up to, you know, like 30 or 40 years later. Because yeah. I, oh, I think they said that um, Baby Diego, as the the film starts off with the youngest person in the world who died and was like 18 or something, uh, was born in like 2012 or 2014 or something like that. So there there are some dates in there to put a con- to to hang your hat on. Yeah, yeah, and and it's not really about the specific dates. It's just about the 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 idea of how long it's been. And how that affects your world building uh, and the speed at which it happened. Obviously, you mentioned in 28 Days Later, it happens faster. All that is to say, like, that's one of the things that kind of makes you realize that this is very much a constructed world. And the uh, the people writing it have a lot of control over what goes on in it, inside of it, and how people act inside of it. And um, essentially setting up different tones and themes to guide their, their story where they want it to go. And in a situation like Children of Men, you have the ability to control the world to such an extent that, and the, the skill with it that you can make it, um, make it sing the way you want it to, uh, make it reinforce your theme rather than kind of shove world building to the side to just have an action back chase, which you can also do if that's what you want to do and you have the money to do it. Good for you. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think the other thing that's interesting is that the, Beyond bringing up that question of, you know, what do you do with your time uh, in in kind of the larger sense of your whole life uh, is that the the even further subgenres that go into each of these uh, apocalyptic films kind of bring their own intrinsic questions with them. So like zombie films, even historically going back to uh, George Romero, are kind of films about like groupthink and the the this kind of mob mentality and zombification of culture and that kind of thing which you know we've done a whole episode on uh the the three flavors cornetto trilogy which hits that home from three different angles uh obviously more from the side of comedy uh and then you know mad max fury road is talking is has more of like a this 
totalitarian authority uh, that is part of that dread. And Children of Men is is just a keeping a future for all of humanity in a, in a much larger scale. So it's interesting that within the the big apocalyptic subgenre, there are even like the zombie films and then the 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 more fantastical or the more uh, totalitarian, the, these other types of films that go into even just apocalyptic films. Exactly. Um, all right, Jonathan, anything else you want to say about the end of the world? I don't think so. The end of the world. And guess what, Alex? It's the end, end of, of the season, season four. <laughs> end of season four. The end of um, season four. Which, uh, just to, we should do some announcements about next season uh, and when they'll be coming around because it'll start at a slightly different time than what you're used to, everybody. Mm-hmm. And we're still, we're working out some details. So uh, we're going to talk much more in depth about next season on the bonus podcast. So, hey, we have bonus a Patreon. Podcast. Go check out the uh, Patreon and listen to the bonus podcast. Um, but yeah, we are going to take a little bit of a break in January and we're going to be reformatting a bit. And again, we'll kind of come up with uh, some more details for you guys. It'll probably be posted on the blog uh, before we start, but we will be starting up in February. Uh, and the first thing that we're going to tackle is uh, various films that are based on Jane Austen novels. Um, we've done one Pride and Prejudice episode before, but there are lots of films that have been based on Jane Austen novels, uh, which are always uh, hilarious and witty and insightful, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. No, it should be really interesting. Uh, I'm really looking forward to next season. Uh, I'm also looking forward to some time to rest and recuperate and make sure we're at a uh, top form for you Absolutely. all for season five. Um, yes. Anything that we should mention uh, about, well, you just mentioned what's going to be on the Patreon. So, yep. Yep. All right. Well then I guess that's about all the time we have for this season of the filmlings, Jonathan. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. And I'm at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlinks.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next season. All right, see ya. Nope. Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast. Bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 125, The End of the Frickin' World. Ah, he almost did it, folks. I got it. You won't be able to hear it because it was it was beeped out. I tried to use Fortnite unironically a couple weeks ago and I got laughed down, so. Man, who are you saying Fortnite to? (laughs) Some people that I meet with fortnightly. You should you should just have like um really nice like like give people like some like home home fresh baked cookies like once every <laughs> fortnight. But the deal is they can only get them if they say fortnight in return. Here are your fortnight cookies. Thank you for my fortnightly cookies. All 28 Jonathans. <laughs> that that's a secret that you didn't know about. There's actually 29 hosts of this podcast. There's one Alex and there's 29 Jonathans. And they all speak in turns. perfect. They all yeah. speak in perfect unison, oh. um, and then we just we we just rotate you guys out whenever we do a live video.
video one. Yeah. Every time there's a cut, we actually replace one Jonathan with another. And you'll you'll just you'll never notice because it's such a smooth edit. Because Jonathan number 17, he's real good with those transitions. Did we see this one together in theaters? We did. We saw it with James. Okay, okay I yeah. thought so, but I just wanted to make sure. I remember because I wore these really dumb preppy shorts. <laughs> okay, good to know. Uh, uh, Taylor wants to know if she was there because we can't remember. No, no, she she very specifically wasn't. It was just dudes. Okay, I thought I so because yeah, I think I think she was off at college. Okay, he right? Says no. 20, oh yeah, twenty fifteen. You were at SFA, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. He says you weren't there. Okay, okay. Yeah, she slept through the whole thing this time. That's okay. That's okay. I kind of agree, Taylor. It's it, Taylor. You're right. Tell her her. Tell her she's right. Alex says you're right to sleep through it. Oh, okay, good. Oh my but, gosh! What? George Miller directed Happy Feet. Yeah. And Babe Pig in the City. Okay. Wow. Uh, sorry. I just had my mind blown a little bit on on the air. So. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back to Mad Max. Um, you 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 gonna be okay, man? Yeah, I just uh, did not know that. Like, what? Anyway, 